0: Welcome to PQ Talk on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar,
1: and I'm Rahul Demania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine.
0: Today, we are going to present a case of a three-year-old boy presenting with bilateral hyperflex wrists. Rahul, can you proceed with our case?
1: A three-year-old, previously healthy male, presents to the emergency department after his mother noted his wrists becoming completely stiff and flexed. Despite several attempts to stretch his wrists out, his mother was unable to place them back into normal position. She brought him to the emergency department for further evaluation. Importantly, mother denies any trauma or injury. Mom also notes that this has happened... Once before, about a month ago, the episode lasted 10 minutes at that time and self-resolved. She did not seek medical attention at that time as well. Patient has no history of bleeding, bruising or chronic medical conditions. His immunizations are up to date and family history was relatively unremarkable. However, the mother states that she does get admitted to the hospital for kidney stones about four to five times per year. She usually, as an outpatient, follows with the urologist. Though she is on diuretic therapy for recurrent renal stones, she denies that her son has any access to these medications and also denies any ingestion. She does state that the patient is a picky eater and does not drink milk, but will eat cheese often with heavy juice intake, about four to five cups per day. Mother denies any recent upper respiratory tract symptoms, vomiting, constipation, urinary abnormalities, or changes in gait. Upon presentation to the emergency department, his vital signs were stable. His physical exam is normal, except for bilateral hands inflection with digits inflection as well. After some resistance, the examiner was able to extend the hands. There were no abrasions or signs of cutaneous injury in his bilateral hands, and there was full range of motion in the elbow and shoulder, as well as in the lower extremities at the ankle, knee, and hip. Prior to drawing blood for a diagnostic workup, the patient undergoes an EKG, which shows some artifact, but is notable for a prolonged QTC interval of 560 milliseconds.
0: So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, so far we have a toddler with bilateral hyperflexion of the wrist, which seem to be in a tonic state, and this episode is recurrent, a family history of renal metabolic disease, and finally, an EKG abnormality uh, in this toddler. Rahul, one key pertinent negative at this stage is that there is no trauma and patient has full range of motion at other large joints. Rahul, let's transition to some key history and physical elements when you think about bilateral wrist flexion.
1: This is an interesting chief complaint. However, I would tailor my history to assess for trauma first and foremost, as this seems to be a primary musculoskeletal issue. The key feature here, Pradeep, is that the patient actually has bilateral wrist involvement, which brings up the concern for an underlying systemic cause, especially if there's no trauma. Now, this underlying systemic cause may be an electrolyte abnormality, a connective tissue disorder like arthrogryposis. Or a muscular abnormality. The family history of recurrent kidney stones, however, points more towards a familial, renal, or electrolyte problem. I would also ask about any trauma related to skin wounds. As this patient is in a tonic state, I would worry about tetanus. And finally, I would get a good dietary history, as this excessive juice consumption may have limited nutritional value. To transition a little bit on physical exam, I would look for any other musculoskeletal abnormalities with this bilateral wrist flexion, especially if we are heading down the route of a nutritional abnormality, electrolyte disturbance, or even renal anomaly. I would like to assess for any bowing of the legs, joint flaring, any metacarpal shortening, or rib abnormality. Pradeep, I would love to hear a little bit more about this case. What happened in the emergency room in terms of the diagnostic workup in this patient?
0: Rahul, to continue with our case, the patient's labs were consistent with a very low ionized calcium of 2.2. Also, a serum total calcium was very low at five milligram per deciliter with a relatively normal albumin. The patient's comprehensive metabolic panel was notable for an elevated alkaline phosphatase at 963 with normal liver function and bilirubin. The rest of his electrolytes, renal function, and complete blood count were normal. As the primary concern was regarding calcium homeostasis, a parathyroid hormone level was sent and revealed to be elevated at 823 picograms per ml. And his 25 vitamin D level was low at 3.6 nanogram per ml. A urine calcium creatinine ratio was elevated and finally, a radiological joint survey of the wrist showed osteopenia of the bones, fysial widening consistent with the final impression, bringing up the concern for rickets. The patient was given 60 mg per kilo of calcium gluconate and was transferred to the ICU for closer diagnostics and monitoring in the setting of severe hypocalcemia with EKG abnormalities.
1: Okay, to summarize, we have a three year old male with bilateral hyperflex wrists due to severe hypocalcemia in the setting of hypovitaminosis D.
0: Rahul, let's start with a short multiple-choice question very relevant to this case.
1: A five-year-old boy is admitted to the PICU with acute respiratory failure, secondary to polytrauma, sustained after being involved in a motor vehicle collision in which the boy was an unrestrained passenger. After initial resuscitation with normal saline, the patient received rapid infusion of four units of packed red blood cells for hemorrhagic shock and a very low hemoglobin at three grams per deciliter over a very short period of time. The patient has started on phenytoin for seizure prophylaxis due to traumatic brain injury. And after initial resuscitation and stabilization, the patient suddenly develops an abnormal rhythm on the monitor. And now is found to be hypotensive. His blood gas drawn post transfusion is notable for a metabolic alkalosis and a very low ionized calcium of two. The hypotension and abnormal rhythm improves with IV repletion of calcium gluconate. The most likely explanation for this trauma patient's hypocalcemia is a pancreatic injury. B, citrate chelation of calcium. C, sepsis. Or D, phenytoin.
0: Rahul, the correct answer is B, citrate chelation of serum calcium. Citrate intoxication is a frequent complication after massive blood transfusions and often presents itself as metabolic alkalosis. The reason this term comes about is due to the conversion of citrate which is applied as an anticoagulant in the blood bags to bicarbonate, and this conversion primarily happens in the liver. So stored blood is anticoagulated using citrate, about 3 grams per unit of packed RBCs, which chelates calcium. Typically, a healthy adult, the liver metabolizes 3 grams of citrate in 5 minutes. Infusion rates greater than 1 unit of RBC over 5 minutes or liver dysfunction increases citrate concentration and lowers plasma ionized calcium. To highlight our other answer choices, we do not have enough evidence to suggest that there is injury to pancreas at this stage and acute pancreatitis does not cause hypocalcemia this quickly. Although in a relatively subacute setting, acute pancreatitis can lead to hypocalcemia. This is primarily due to autodigestion of mesenteric fat by activated pancreatic enzymes, resulting in release of free fatty acids, which form calcium salts, transient hypoparathyroidism, and even hypomagnesemia. While hypocalcemia can be seen in sepsis and critical illness in general, the etiology is usually multifactorial. In sepsis, the effect of the bacteriomic state and the inflammatory mediators on PTH secretion and function can result in hypocalcemia. Now, phenytoin is known to cause hypocalcemia by altering the bone and mineral metabolism. It impairs normal vitamin D metabolism, which in turn lowers the calcium absorption from the gut and causes hypocalcemia. This effect is unlikely to be seen with use of phenytoin in a patient with normal renal function.
1: Before we go into diagnostic management, I want to particularly highlight some physiologic aspects of calcium homeostasis. Remember that only 1% of total body calcium is in the extracellular space. 99% of the body's calcium is in the bone. The extracellular calcium exists as protein bound calcium, which is mainly related to albumin. 10% is chelated and about half is ionized. The ionized form is the active form which is integral in calcium homeostasis. Serum calcium is tightly regulated by parathyroid hormone, vitamin D, and calcitonin by their action on the gut, kidneys, and bone. So let's break this down. When we think about parathyroid hormone, in the kidney, parathyroid hormone is going to increase calcium reabsorption and inhibit phosph reabsorption. You can think of this as parathyroid hormone being phosphate trashing hormone, as it promotes phosphaturia. This loss of phosphate shifts flow of calcium from the bone to the extracellular space. Parathyroid hormone, as mentioned, increases calcium reabsorption. How does it do that? Well, specifically, it works in the distal convoluted tubule and it is going to increase the amount of calcium reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule as well. Now, what is PTH's effect on vitamin D? Well, in the kidney, it activates 1-alpha-hydroxylase. This takes 25 vitamin D and turns it into 125 vitamin D. And that 125 vitamin D is going to facilitate intestinal absorption of calcium and phosphate. Now let's talk a little bit about calcitonin. Calcitonin is secreted in response to increased serum calcium. This helps divert calcium to the bones. And so remember that calcitonin tones the bones, i.e. it promotes calciuria and phosphaturia. How does calcium relate to pH? Well, an increase in serum pH of 0.1 units can cause your ionized calcium to fall by 0.16 milligrams per deciliter. The total calcium will drop by 0.8 milligrams per deciliter for every one gram per deciliter decrease in serum albumin. The change in total calcium and ionized calcium are independent of each other. So when you're in the ICU, and you have a patient who has a low total calcium, always try to correlate that with their albumin.
0: Rahul, that was an excellent summary of the physiologic aspects of calcium homeostasis. As we have talked about a few presentations of hypocalcemia thus far, as well as calcium homeostasis, I do want to highlight some subtle but clinically relevant findings in hypocalcemia, namely PTK. This is because. Calcium is integral in platelet metabolism. And when you have low ionized calcium, platelets will have decreased activation. And thus, you will have physical exam findings related to primary uh, hemostasis. Secondly, remember that in neonates, hypocalcemia can present as strider.
1: Pradeep, let's conclude our podcast with diagnostic workup and management frameworks. If you had to work up our patient with hypocalcemia, what would be your diagnostic approach?
0: Rahul, one way to approach any patient with hypocalcemia is to measure serum PTH level. You can then divide causes of hypocalcemia as either associated with elevated PTH level and those causes that are associated with a low PTH level. In general, when serum calcium is low, PTH level should go up by triggering release of calcium and phosphate from the bones as well as absorbing calcium from the kidneys. PTH will also trigger formation of 1, 2, 5-dihydroxyvitamin D, which increases intestinal absorption of calcium and phosphate. If you have hypocalcemia and a high PTH level, think of PTH resistance, calcium loss or calcium intake absorption problems. PTH resistant, N-organ resistance, missense mutations in the PTH or hypomagnesemia. Pseudo-hypoparathyroidism, which is x linked dominant disease, can present with physical findings that variably include short bones, short stature, stocky build, early onset obesity, and ectopic ossifications, as well as endocrine defects that often include resistance to PTH and TSH. Patients with PTH resistance usually have high serum phosphate levels. Calcium loss can be acute, as in sepsis, acute pancreatitis, tumor lysis syndrome, and even respiratory alkalosis, or chronic, which includes renal causes, hyperphosphatemia, and uh, and from ca- uh, cancer metastasis. A common cause of poor calcium uptake and poor management of calcium homeostasis is deficiency of or resistant to vitamin D. Hypocalcemia and low PTH level can be congenital, as in DiGeorge syndrome, or acquired in case of infections like HIV. Autoimmune destruction of the PTH glands or seen after surgery or radiation, which can lead to destruction of the PTH glands. Infiltration of the parathyroid with cancer, sarcoidosis, or deposition of iron and copper can also cause destruction of the PTH glands.
1: All right, listeners, this can be very confusing with arrows. So let's summarize with the conceptual framework. Remember, parathyroid hormone physiologically increases calcium concentration, and decreases phosphate concentration. So, if you have hypoparathyroidism, which means that your parathyroid hormone levels are low, you will have hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. With calcium homeostasis disorders, I would advise you all to take it back to the normal parathyroid axis and then branch out from there.
0: Exactly, Raul. So how does vitamin D get integrated into this pathophysiologic or diagnostic framework?
1: Great question, Pradeep. Vitamin D deficiency can either be genetic or acquired. It can also be related to enzyme deficiencies or vitamin D receptor problems. The overwhelming majority of vitamin D deficiency disorders are acquired, and common causes include obesity malabsorption, poor exposure to sunlight, especially in darker pigmented individuals, poor nutritional intake, and like in our case, a picky eater. A toddler typically doesn't consume non-dairy sources of calcium, such as beans, leafy green vegetables, etc. Thus, this exacerbates the poor calcium absorption, and that is due to the lack of vitamin D in the diet. Now what about newborns? Babies who breastfeed and are not supplemented with vitamin D or those who are premature or even if the mother had vitamin D deficiency can also have hypocalcemia due to vitamin D deficiency. In our summary, I do want to call out vitamin D deficiency secondary to malabsorption as this is frequently tested on boards in the context of cystic fibrosis and the exocrine pancreatic insufficiency which is associated with this disorder. You can also get poor vitamin D metabolism in celiac disease when you have essentially small intestinal failure.
0: Rahul, whether you're talking about PTH or vitamin D, to be comprehensive, a good approach for labs would be to send some basic labs such as a CBC, a CMP, urine analysis, blood gas, and ionized calcium labs such as ionized calcium serum calcium magnesium potassium etc help to fix abnormal values quickly which should be the number one priority while a search for diagnosis is being made a consult with endocrinology as well as a nephrology colleagues may help with other labs that need to be sent for diagnostic purposes the help of a friendly pq nutritionist is invaluable to get detailed dietary history as well as to make dietary suggestions
1: That was a great summary, Pradeep, and I like the multidisciplinary approach. Let's go into the clinical relevance of these labs, which you will get.
0: Rahul, one of the most important labs to get is PTH. It is the most important lab to investigate the cause of hypocalcemia, as we have already described above. Serum phosphate, high level indicates end organ resistance or renal disease. Low value with high PTH, such as secondary hypoparathyroidism, such as vitamin D deficiency. Alkaline phosphatase, which is basically a bone turnover marker, if elevated in a patient with hypocalcemia, suggests vitamin D deficiency. Twenty-five hydroxyvitamin D, major circulating form of vitamin D in the serum, is the, the best marker of vitamin D status. The blood 25 hydroxyvitamin D level corresponds with vitamin D intake and activity. The half-life of 25 hydroxy vitamin D is 2 to 3 weeks as compared to a half-life of 4 to 6 weeks for 1 to 5 dihydroxyvitamin D. Hence 25 hydroxyvitamin D is measured. We can also send amylase lipase for suspected acute pancreatitis. We can send CPK if we suspect muscle breakdown. A urine-calcium creatinine ratio is used to determine abnormal renal calcium excretion and renal tubular reabsorption problems. Uh, We can also send adrenocorticotropin, cortisol, and thyroid-stimulating hormone levels for suspected polyendocrine failure. So Rahul, we mentioned in our case the imaging and EKG as a part of the presentation. What are the salient points with regards to these two diagnostic tests?
1: Well, if you think about imaging studies, the x-ray showed issues with the metaphysis of the long bones. This was, in our case, of the wrist, but it can also be in the knee. If you get a hand x-ray, this may show shortened fourth and fifth metacarpals, and this is primarily related to pseudo-hypoparathyroidism type 1a. In hypoparathyroidism, the skull x-ray may show intracerebral calcifications and even deep brain calcifications, such as those found in the basal ganglia. The chest radiograph will show the classic finding in severe hypovitaminosis D, and that classic finding is of the rib cage, known as the rachitic rosary. Let's transition to the EKG. On the EKG in hypocalcemia, you will see prolonged QT interval on the electrocardiogram as a result of the ST segment lengthening. Now, when you have issues with calcium and you suspect that there is some receptor resistance, familial history, or any other suspicion that is out of the normal realm, we would like for everyone to recognize the importance of a genetics consult. In our patient, the total as well as serum ionized calcium are low and there is an appropriately elevated PTH, as well as alkaline phosphatase. The patient has a normal serum phosphate level, low 25 vitamin D, and all of these together, along with the dietary history, points to severe vitamin D deficiency due to poor nutritional intake, also known as nutritional rickets. Pradeep, to close, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigations lead us to hypocalcemia, due to vitamin D deficiency as our cause, what would be the management framework?
0: Rahul, as we have said before, the initial focus should be on providing good, basic PICU care. Attention to airway, breathing, and hemodynamics should be a priority in such patients. Before diving into diagnostics, every attempt to correct abnormal values must be made and the levels frequently reassessed. Hypocalcemia, if symptomatic or severe with EKG changes, we can use 10% calcium gluconate or calcium chloride as an initial bolus, followed by calcium gluconate infusion, which should then be titrated to maintain normal serum ionized calcium levels.
1: Remember, listeners, that calcium is a divalent cation. So, which other divalent cation would you want to make sure is within reference range as you are correcting hypocalcemia? You got it. Magnesium. If a patient has hypomagnesemia, correct magnesium concurrently as refractory hypocalcemia will be present until magnesium deficiency is corrected.
0: Yeah, Rahul, to continue with our management framework, once the patient can take PO, uh, they should be transitioned to uh, calcium carbonate. For the patient with vitamin D deficiency or hypoparathyroidism, Supplementation with vitamin D analogs such as 125 2, 5 which is calcitriol or vitamin D3, uh, should be considered. Rahul, one thing to watch for as this child's serum calcium normalizes is what is called as hungry bone syndrome, a condition in which there is paradoxical worsening of hypocalcemia after initiation of vitamin D therapy. This condition is thought to be due to rapid bone mineral uptake by the demineralized skeleton and management may require very high doses of calcium as well as occasional therapeutic doses of calcitriol, the active form of vitamin D. How do we follow up on such patients and monitor their response to therapy? We follow blood levels of calcium, phosphate, 25-hydroxyvitamin D, PTH, and alkaline phosphatase and the urinary calcium-creatinine ratio approximately four weeks after the initiation of treatment and at monthly intervals until the resolution of the abnormal labs. Most children will show improvement in about three months of their radiologic abnormalities.
1: Radeep, that was an excellent summary. Where can our listeners read more information
0: about hypocalcemia? Rahul, I would highly recommend our listeners read the case records by Verkud etal published in NEJM 2020. A link to the DOI is presented in our script. Also, chapter 71, page 877 to 878 of the latest edition of Furman's and Zimmerman's textbook of pediatric critical care has information on hypocalcemia. And chapter 30, uh, pages 930 to 933 of Lucky and Pediatric Critical Care Text and Study Guide, 2nd Edition, Volume 1. All these references will be in our show notes.
1: All right, to summarize today's take-home points, remember that when you have hypocalcemia, you are going to be twitchy on presentation. Remember this mnemonic, cats go numb, which reviews the symptoms of hypocalcemia, namely convulsions, arrhythmias, tetany, and numbness. You also want to correlate five major lab values when you're talking about disorders of calcium regulation. These are going to be ionized calcium, total calcium, phosphate, PTH, and finally vitamin D levels. In your management framework, you need to have a multidisciplinary model as you approach hypocalcemia with help not only from the pediatric ICU team, but also pediatric endocrinology, nutrition, and genetics.
0: This concludes our episode on hypocalcemia. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Diminia. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.